you know, I basically just had no time to grieve and to deal with this, you know, this enormous trauma in my life. Before we begin today's episode, I've got a question for you. What would happen if we started marketing to hearts, not brains? Award-winning marketeer, author, and mentor Fab Giovanetti has the answer. So join her over at Alt Marketing School, a podcast sharing weekly lessons, tactics, hacks, and tips to make marketing more human. Keep up to date with the latest trends and hear from the brightest marketing minds and business leaders, including Mark Schaefer, Caitlin Borgoyne, and Dan Murray Serta. So following today's 40-minute mental episode, do head over to any of the popular podcast platforms and search for Alt Marketing School. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-driven entrepreneurs to Olympic champions, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. Today, I'm joined by Ian Hogarth, a hugely accomplished entrepreneur, angel investor, and co-founder of Plural, an exciting new early-stage platform dedicated to investing in Europe's next generation of tech companies with global ambitions. Prior to Plural, Ian co-founded Songkick with fellow 40-minute mentor Michelle Yu. Ian served as Songkick CEO for eight years, scaling the business to $100 million in sales and 120 employees before exiting to Warner Music Group. It's a real privilege to have Ian on the podcast and get the opportunity to dig into his experience of scaling Songkick and hear more about his latest venture, Plural, which is set to truly transform the investment landscape in Europe. Ian, a big welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Yeah, great, thank you. Oh, good stuff. Well, uh, we're going to kick off, as we always do, with some quick bar questions just to warm you up. So please finish the following sentences after me. My first ever job was? Working for a year before university, writing software for touchscreens. Oh, amazing. That's a great first job. I don't think many of our founders have actually started with that job. How did you get into that in the first place? I mean, it's kind of, I suppose it's skipping a paper round and things like that. But yeah, I applied for a, a sort of apprenticeship scheme at an organization called Cambridge Consultants. And they basically sponsored me through university, uh, worked for them for 10 months prior to university. And they sort of taught me the, the sort of fundamentals of software programming as part of that apprenticeship. Oh, what a brilliant route to, uh, to uni as well to get that uh, sponsored as well. That's amazing. And I guess it explains a lot of the kind of future path of your career. So looking forward to digging into that more. Brilliant to me means people who follow their own path with energy and integrity. I love that. And I'm assuming you look for founders with those sorts of qualities as well and nowadays. So yeah, looking forward to discussing further. A misconception people about me have is... I'm not sure it's exactly a, a misconception, but I'm I'm quite private about my family life. You know, after my son was born, I really reoriented my professional life around being a father to him. So, you know, I took equal parental leave. You know, I sort of organized my working day very much so I can spend as much time with him as possible and put his needs first in many cases. So I would say there's kind of what a joy it's been to be a dad and how much that's changed the way I work. Oh, I love that answer. Yeah, I mean, uh, the best thing that ever happened to me was being a dad almost seven years ago. Sadly, it took me the pandemic to, to kind of properly reorient my uh, my lifestyle and, and change sort of not having to commute every day and those sorts of things. But I've never really looked back since. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people will, will be grateful for hearing that because I think it's, uh, you know, it is doable in this, in this day and age to do things like 
shared parental leave, isn't it? And I think it's something that we're seeing more and more um, execs uh, doing. And finally, can you share something we wouldn't learn from your CV that could be a failure or setback in your career that you've learned a lot from? I think a funny one was, you know, I, I studied engineering at university and I specialized in machine learning back in 2005. And I also studied Mandarin Chinese in 2000 and 2003 and 2005. And I had this quite clear plan of wanting to start an AI company in China. And my life was very much building towards that. You know, I was working on my Mandarin, I was working on machine learning. And then I kind of realized within about a year of trying to do that, that it was just a terrible idea. Like, <laughs> you know, it was challenging to start, a, you know, start a new business in China as a foreigner and, and uh, back in, you know, 2005, six, when I was trying to do it. It was also just like not prime time for machine learning. You know, it wasn't really, there wasn't really much you could actually build in 2005. And so, you know, it was kind of a big vision I had that I've been building towards for maybe five years at that point that sort of just, I had to take a different path. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. That's really interesting. And I guess you ultimately went on to become a very successful entrepreneur. But uh, you mentioned you, you started your career as a software engineer, and, and clearly you did that through university, and then became a, a consultant at Bain & Co. before starting Songkick. So do you mind telling our listeners just a little bit more about that early career for you and what ultimately led you to starting Songkick? Yeah, I think I got really lucky in that my grandfather was an engineer, and he had a a really kind of lovely thing he did with his retirement where he would basically he, he was part of a charity called remap and and the core idea was he'd basically get connected with people with some kind of disability that was in inhibiting them doing some day-to-day -day actions that they really valued and he would go to sort of consult with them sit with them and then basically build a little contraption that enabled them to do the thing they weren't able to do and I would kind of follow him around doing that. And so I, I kind of got a real feeling for the pleasure of inventing new things from him. And he would he had a workshop where he, he had a small wooden lathe, we'd make things together. So he really loved making things. And so I think I got introduced relatively young to the pleasure of making something. And then I got really lucky in that both at school and at university, I got the chance to make things of my own. And so I made a quite a specific style of bike light at university when I was 16. And I just, I found this like, incredible amount of energy came out and i just remember working so hard and it felt effortless to work hard all i wanted to do was work on this bike light and then at university i got to make my first robot and again i just all i wanted to do was work i just you know i would want to be in the lab basically constantly trying to work on the software and make the robot do different things and i realized that making something new where i could kind of see the whole thing and had a sort of vision for the whole thing was just this, it catalyzed me like nothing else. And I felt so alive, so motivated, and it felt really effortless. I felt like I could basically work hard without having to really apply any sort of willpower or anything like that. And so I knew that I wanted to make something. Like I knew that was really like the thing for me. And I, I also, my dad was an entrepreneur. And so I saw that and I, I, I sort of thought the way I probably would do it by starting something. My dad was really wonderful. I wasn't at Bain very long, I was there about nine months. And then I had the idea for Songkick and I called him up and I basically said, look, I'm, I'm thinking about quitting my job and just starting this company. And I knew that basically but pretty much anyone else in my life I called, they probably tried to tell me not to, but my dad just said, go for it. <laughs> and so I think there are lots of aspects of kind of luck along the way, but I'd say I was clear that I loved making things 
And then I got lucky in that my, you know, my dad and my grandfather both kind of showed me different sides of that. My dad showed me kind of how to do something, sort of plunge out on your own. And my granddad showed me how to sort of make stuff. I love that. What an interesting story. And 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 for those that listening to this that haven't heard of Songkick, I'll be surprised if that's the case. But those that haven't, can you tell them a little bit about what Songkick is and sort of the early story of how that kind of came to be? Yeah. So Songkick was was and is a an application for discovering concerts so we we look at the music you listen to we have the largest database of of kind of concert listings in the world and then songkick will basically scan your music tapes you know the bands you've listened to scan all the concerts happening and then proactively alert you when any of them announce concerts and help you buy tickets so sort of takes all the effort out of finding concerts to go to and you know someone who uses songkick sort of goes to roughly twice as many concerts after they start using the app because it just becomes so much easier to find stuff to go to and going back to kind of kind of how I got started. You know, I was living in Singapore working for Bain and I I, I basically took the job at Bain because I wanted to spend time in China with this plan of starting this AI company. I thought I probably ought to learn about business and things like that. And then I had this really weird sort of detour where Bain basically said, look, you know, we know you've moved your whole life out to Singapore, but we'd like you to now move to California to go and, you know, help out in this technology company. And I was, I was really against that because my whole plan was to to basically base my life in China. And I was quite annoyed. And, you know, I ended up working out, you know, surprisingly well, because the time that they moved me to California, they moved me to the Bay Area in 2006, just when sort of things were, I think there's a new wave of energy coming into Silicon Valley. And a friend of mine, Alex, he connected with a friend of his called Jeff, Jeff Hammerbacker. And Jeff was the head of data science at Facebook. And he really kind of was just a, a became a great friend and you know kind of a mentor in many ways to this day and Jeff I saw what Jeff was doing which is building out these you know these really amazing sort of data science systems at Facebook in 2006 and he had the same academic background as me the same kind of intellectual interests and I just thought that's what I should be doing you know you can do something right now and so I quit my job after I, I basically then started to try and find the first good idea and, and that and that was Songkick and it, it was somewhat Michelle's idea actually rather than mine but as soon as I kind of, you know, as soon as we found something good, I kind of want to just get on with it and, and start up. And I, I think meeting Jeff and seeing how, you know, someone who was sort of 24 was doing something really inspiring and really cool, just kind of, just kind of like tipped me into doing it sooner than I might have done otherwise. Amazing. What a great time to be in the Bay Area and to come up with such a, I guess that's a topic that kind of caught you all, uh, sort of sparked that inspiration. And you clearly obviously built it into, you know, a hugely recognizable and incredibly successful business. You led the company as CEO for eight years and achieved so many incredible milestones. And that's, I guess, particularly impressive given that you were a first time founder at the time. So learning on the job must have been particularly challenging. Were there any things that, that really helped you get up the learning curve quicker in that time? And particularly given that you were relatively young and inexperienced? I think the first thing that really helped was Y Combinator. So we were the second British team to get into Y Combinator. And it was just such a shock to the system because I would say Pete, Michelle and I, the co-founders of Songkick, we were quite feral entrepreneurs. Like we didn't really know what we were doing. And like, I remember someone telling me though about VCs. And I just said, what is a VC? And it wasn't startup culture in the UK. There were very few startups and there wasn't as much of a sort of internet culture around it and so i found paul graham's essays and kind of went down that rabbit hole got into yc and so then we sort of got a bit of a shock to the system and i remember stuff like talking to 
I think it was Trevor Blackwell, one of the partners, and he said, oh, I think you should raise some investment for your startup. And I remember just sort of saying like, well, well, how much do you think we should raise? And I think we were like living so, so, so cheaply and trying to, you know, because we put, we'd started the business on our savings from our first jobs. And I remember him saying, oh, you should maybe think about raising a million dollars. I just like burst out laughing because I was like, dude, what are we going to do with all that? Like, we're like, <laughs> like you know, like thousand pounds a month. Like, where do you, well, and obviously then you fast forward and I kind of see how that you do suddenly spend money because you, you hire people and go faster, et cetera. But I'd say Y Combinator was one big thing. And then the other one was really active mentors and more experienced people around me. So one person who I remember really helping me a lot was an angel investor called Peter Reed. And he was in many ways. So when I, when I became an angel investor, I sort of based a lot of what I was doing around how it felt to work with him. And he, he was just a really lovely, wonderful guy who would who spent hours and hours with me on my first sort of institutional fundraise, our Series A, basically helping me interpret what the hell the VCs meant, negotiating terms, playing the VCs off against each other. And I remember at one point, even one of the VCs got quite pissed off with me and sort of said, oh, like, you know, you're like, you need to just agree these terms or just they were being quite aggressive. And I remember one of the angel investors we had was a bit scared off by that because I think he wanted to keep his relationship with the VC suite. And Peter was like, basically like, look, I don't give a shit. I'll happily like damage that relationship if it helps you get the right outcome here. So I think having somebody who, it wasn't like he gave me this one piece of advice and then walked away. He was just on the phone with me like every day for like two weeks as I worked through this. So that was really helpful. And then I think we brought in some early team members, people like a, a guy called Gideon Bullock, who he joined us from Skype. And he sort of led designing the kind of, who's technically our creative director, but he basically led all the design. And he just brought so much maturity into the business in terms of how you do product development and how you build things. And then our CTO, Dan Crow, he joined us from Apple and Google, and he brought quite a lot of experience in, in terms of sort of scaling and, and sort of managing an engineering team. So they were a couple of examples of people inside the business who really helped me and I got to learn from. So yeah, I think basically finding people you had a bunch of knowledge that I didn't have that I could then benefit from. Yeah, that's, that's such a great answer. And I think we find some of the very best founders and CEOs out there are able to sort of attract and retain exceptional talent, particularly at that leadership level. And you clearly made some some really strong early hires. Were there any other particular lessons, particularly around that kind of hiring point, and especially for any founders that might be listening to this that might be at that similar sort of stage in the journey? What advice would you have for them that are looking to build a, a world-class senior team? I mean, I think some general advice is getting other people to help you calibrate. So I'm just thinking about a couple of the startups that I work with really closely. I've ended up interviewing probably 80% of the kind of key early hires they've made alongside the founder. And I've just been able to give them a point of view on the, the people they're looking at and trying to, it's not so much calibrating on whether someone's talented or not, because usually the founder's kind of capable of doing that. But it's more like, do they really fit with where the holes are in this organization at this stage? And like, it's quite a nuanced thing of just trying to work out like, how are these people to come together? And will there be a really catalyzing effect on the organization if you bring this person in? So I think that's a, that's a general thing you can do. And, you know, you should find sort of mentors and advisors, investors who can kind of play that role, I'd say. Personally, I think I've always been really drawn to people who challenge me. I think I'm probably the opposite of someone who likes like, yes, men. I'm almost like quite skeptical of anyone who isn't, isn't willing to sort of tell me when I'm wrong. And so if I'm playing a competitive game or like chess or something, like I always want to play against someone better than me. And I really enjoy the feeling of being challenged by someone. And so think I've always been drawn to and good at identifying people who will kind of stretch me or there's going to be a, like a healthy tension between 
the things we know and and the, the way we can kind of co-evolve together as as sort of people so i've always seen it as a really wonderful thing when you can work with someone who you, you really learn from one thing i have observed that the very best people in this area do is they're sort of almost constantly on the maintaining a database in their head of people they'd love to hire there's a founder called kieran o'neill runs a business called thread and i would say kieran is really one of the very best people i know at hiring and he's hired so many good people over the years. I think he has like, whenever I say to him, oh, Kieran, I'm, I'm looking to help this startup find this person. He'll always have like five or six people he's been tracking for years who, you know, at some point he's going to go and try and hire one of them. So I think he's kind of the example of it taken to the absolute extreme because he's just so, so proactive and thinking about it before he even has a hole in the organization to be filled. The other thing I'd say is, I think I didn't do this that well as a founder, but I think like part of the other side of that is I really don't believe it's a good thing to have sort of people who can't be replaced, including yourself. I think it's actually a healthy organization is one where no individual has too much leverage on the organization and can kind of dictate how they want things to be because the organization depends on them too much. You know, it's just lack of resiliency. And so I think if one way to minimize politics as an organization is to sort of really try to set things up in such a way where everyone, including yourself, is replaceable and you're all actually really there in service of the mission and there's no ability for kind of ego to run out ahead of the organization. Yeah, that's such good advice. And I really love that point around that having an eye on the market like much further ahead in terms of talent because I think sometimes founders can be very reactive to, oh God, we need to get someone at the door quickly. Whereas if you're consistently looking for great talent, even if you can't hire them instantly, just building that relationship over the long term, I think you can get really uh, ahead of the competition. The other thing about talent that is really quite mysterious and amazing is if you've got an organization with, let's say, like, I'm just going to make this up, like there's three founders, you know, they all bring a lot to the table. But then there's just this other person who enters the building who just brings something magical that is not that yet there in the founding team. The business can suddenly do things it just couldn't do before. Like it can be a different thing. And there's this amazing way in which like talent can actually catalyze the ambition level being raised, the potential suddenly going up. And and suddenly, like, you know, you thought you were dealing with a company that was going to do X and suddenly it can do something quite substantially more. And so I think of talent as like extremely catalytic. You know, it's not so much just like, oh yeah, we've got some holes and we need to fill them and we need to check these boxes. It's also like really, really, really amazing people can kind of catalyze the actual entire scope and mission of the business expanding. 100%. No, that's so, so true. Thank you so much, Ian. It's really interesting talking about that because you've built multiple teams in it and we'll come on to talk about Plural where I guess you'll be backing some of the best talent in Europe. But before we come to that, it'd be remiss of me not to mention some of the harder parts of the uh, the journey at, at Songkick. I know that you, during your, your tenure as CEO, you had an antitrust battle with Ticketmaster, which was settled out of court for $130 million. Can you share just a bit about that experience and, and how you got through it, particularly stressful time, I'd imagine? And then we'd also just love to learn a bit about kind of when you knew it was the right time to sort of step away from Songkick, which is, again, another challenging thing to do as a, as a founder. I mean, I'll answer the second question first. I mean, I'd say, you know, by far and away, the hardest time, you know, during Songkick was that my sister was diagnosed with a terminal form of cancer and and passed away. And I, so sorry. you know, running a startup at the best of time takes a lot out of you and it, it depletes your kind of resiliency over time. And I'm sort of proud of the fact that even while that was happening, I was able to support my family and I was able to continue being a good CEO to the business and navigate the business to a kind of a, to sort of good outcome or the best outcome available to the business. But 
once I'd sort of done that, I basically completed this merger and kind of like set us down the path of the lawsuit and, and various other things. I kind of knew, you know, I basically just had no time to grieve and to deal with this, you know, this enormous trauma in my life. And so it was clear to me, I just needed to, it was the right time where I could sort of step away with, with kind of confidence. I'd sort of done my best by both the company and my family. And it was time to sort of grieve, to have time for myself. In terms of the question about the lawsuit and sort of other hard times, I mean, I think in some ways the lawsuit was just a bit of a kind of, maybe the entire company really was building up to that over the course of it, because the core of Songkick is we just picked one of the most monopolized markets on earth. So Ticketmaster Live Nation are two businesses that were allowed to merge by the the US kind of government in a period when they were taking a very, very lax approach to antitrust and allowing a lot of kind of very large company mergers to uh, to occur. But, you know, you basically had a Ticketmaster with, let's say, 60, 70% of primary ticketing market share in North America, you know, Live Nation, which probably has, for the sake of argument, the same kind of percentage of concert promotion. Live Nation, subsequently to the merger, built the, the world's largest artist management company. They ended up launching their own secondary ticketing offering, which is now, I think, probably the second largest in the world. They have the largest global festival business. And there's just these, you know, a lot of the rights they have are multi-decade rights. You know, their rights over tickets at a venue for, let's say, a decade. And so you have a market that is just so unbelievably controlled by a single organization. And, you know, that just creates so much challenge for innovation because it's just much harder to do new things when one company kind of controls the market so substantially. And so we did our best to find a way through that. And it was, I really feel like I was kind of like a dog with a bone trying to find the angle where you could build something new and better for fans and artists that was allowed to compete in that landscape. And we tried really, really hard. And we ultimately, I think, were doing some really amazing things. I mean, the the, the tour we took did with Adele, you know, there was, there was some amazing things we launched during that process, like the ability to block scalpers at the on-sale. And we had, you know, Adele's global tour was one of the largest tours in the entire world, probably of the decade. And yet it had the lowest percentage of tickets being scalped that anyone ever seen on such a large tour, all through new technology, right? So that's the benefit of innovation. But challenge, it's much, much harder to bring innovation to market in a you know, heavily monopolized market. And so in the end, we had to file an antitrust suit because of some of the, the things that Live Nation Ticketmaster did that eventually the US government fined them, I think, $10 million for various counts of computer hacking and things like that. So it was, it was a, I think it was kind of one of these things where we sort of, we didn't want to file antitrust suit, but we sort of didn't really have an option eventually due to their activities. So I don't know, I think like looking back on it all, I would just say I'm so sensitive to market dynamics. And, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a, obviously it'd be a real shame if people were scared off trying to innovate in markets because of monopolies. We need brave people to do that, but it's just, it requires, I think, a higher level of experience to pull it off. Um, then maybe a first-time founder, you know, like if you look at the music industry in general, there've been so many talented people who've had a go at doing something in it. And, you know, probably one of the few and only successful examples was, you know, Daniel Ek and Spotify. And, you know, the founders there were second-time founders and had a lot more experience than than, than I did when I when I started Songkick. And what an amazing story. And, and I think made all the more incredible getting through that difficult period, given your, your, your personal um, sort of grief at the time. I mean, that's you know, something no one should go through. So, I mean, huge, huge kudos to all, you, all you've done. And for standing up against, uh, you know, a, a bigger business, trying to sort of effectively bully their way through, which we see far too often. 
I really hope you're enjoying today's episode so far. But before we continue hearing from today's mentor, I wanted to take a minute to give a shout out to our series sponsors, Alchemist. Alchemist is an industry-leading learning and development company using immersive and interactive experiences to help increase employee engagement, levels of happiness and achievement across your teams and overall productivity. Alchemist presents L&D departments with an opportunity to innovate and be bold in their approaches to blended learning. If you love the sound of this as much as we do here at JBM, then head over to thisisalchemist.com forward slash 40 minute mentor to learn more. And now back to our 40 minute mentor. You've obviously spent a number of years sort of since Sonkick as a successful angel investor, but you're now back in the founder seat with a very different proposition. So for those that don't know about Plural, can you give our listeners a little bit more info on, on what the business does and where the inspiration came from? There were four of us that co-founded Plural, myself, Khaled Heliui, Sten Tampkiwi, and uh, Khaled Henricus. And the four of us have been founders and operators of European-based startups. And all of us, we sort of, we united around three themes that kind of felt important to us. The first was we all kind of talked about what we wished we'd had when we were founders, you know, which was really access to people who'd been in our shoes with that kind of really deep operational experience who could help us navigate some of the the challenges as kind of an active sparring partner. The second thing was we'd all been approached by VC funds about kind of joining them and some of the, some great VC funds as well. And, and for all of us, th- those places hadn't really felt like a home. They'd felt very hierarchical, quite sort of, you know, sometimes there was a bit of a culture that was felt a bit more like the culture of banking rather than the culture of kind of founders and startups. And, you know, not really that sort of peer-to-peer culture that we'd come to sort of know and love as, as founders. And then the third thing is we all just were really big believers in the importance of Europe having great technology companies, you know, for long-term European sovereignty, for the sort of health of European economies and democracies. And so we sort of said, let's sort of come together and try to find a, a product that sort of ticks those three boxes. So what Plural is, is basically a, it's an investment platform for, to enable, you know, people we kind of call unemployables to back startups. So unemployables, you know, are these these former founders who've spent, you know, a meaningful chunk of their career building a company. And there's this sort of weird thing that happens when you spend a long time as a founder where you kind of become unemployable and, and not necessarily in a way that is particularly comfortable or, or nice, but you just become so relentlessly independent that you're just not really going to thrive in a situation where someone's telling you what to do. You sort of really need to do your own thing. And those kind of people don't really fit into traditional venture capital. They're kind of just a bit too independent. And so plural is a way for those people to give something back and to continue to contribute in a way that is really native to them. And the way that is, is they find missions they personally deeply believe in, and they commit the funds money, and they commit a lot of their time to trying to change the destiny of those missions. So, you know, I'll I'll give you an example. You know, I'm, I'm helping a startup that is using advanced machine learning to scalably to detect really, really horrible content in online video. And the core idea is to basically make the internet safer by scalably detecting bad content. And I really personally believe in that mission. You know, I would, I'd love to figure out a way to reduce the harms that are perpetrated against, in particular, children through some of these larger online platforms. And this is an exceptional founder who's trying to do this really hard thing. And, you know, I want to basically use a big chunk of the next five years of my life to help her succeed. And so it's this kind of taking people like me who've got a really strong independent spirit, 
but where they actually really also want to contribute to some important missions and trying to find plural enables them to do that and to back founders they really believe in and missions they really care about. I love that. It's so, so important. And the passion really comes across. And I, I think uh, when Plural was announced, there was, there was lots of press, lots of excitement about it. And I know that, uh, you know, on the surface, some people will see it as a, as a, as a kind of take on a, a VC model. But can you tell our listeners a bit more about why that isn't the case? And why you feel particularly right now in the ecosystem uh, in Europe, we really need Plural? So I think that the thing that makes Plural a little bit different, I think, to sort of venture capital as it's kind of often practiced nowadays is that we are very mission first. So we're basically saying, let's take one of these unemployables and have them basically identify a mission that they are extremely personally compelled by, like to the extent that they would consider joining the company or founding the company. So there's a very high level of intrinsic motivation. And then the time that they will spend with that company is much, much less bounded than a VC fund. So they could spend, say, a day a week with that company if they wanted to, to really try to change the outcome. And the idea is if you have that intrinsic motivation for the mission, you're going to just work a lot harder to try to do something and, and a lot more creatively and with a lot more heart to change the outcome of that business. And so I think that traditionally VC tends to be sort of start with the question of can this make a lot of money? Whereas we tend to start with the, the question, do you really care about this mission or not? But when you go back over the history of, of kind of investing in startups, there are obviously examples of kind of investment entities that did actually do things a bit like that. So I think Y Combinator early on and now, you know, really ultimately was very much focused on, you know, really, really changing the destiny of, of, of companies. If you go back to the earliest venture capital, like, you know, Arthur Rock and Fairchild Semiconductor, Arthur Rock, you know, when he invested in Fairchild, it was six or seven incredible physicists. And they basically came to him and said, look, can you help us find a job somewhere? And he said, no, let's start a company and you're going to own it, and we're going to get some external capital for it, and there's going to be an options plan. And he basically you know, brought this very creative, generative energy to the process that was much less like a financier and much more like a builder and a, and a creator. And so I don't want to sort of spend too much energy arguing whether we are or aren't a VC, but I do think we're trying to do something that is where the, the core motivation starts somewhere else, which is right. what's something where you really want to make a contribution to the mission. Uh, in terms of why Europe needs that, I mean, I think that Europe will really benefit from more really hard missions being accomplished here. And I think that part of accomplishing really hard things is having people around you who can tilt the odds in your favor. And we, I think we should talk a little bit about, for example, I think that companies like Tesla or SpaceX, these really hard companies that tackle like substantial sort of real world challenges, companies based on kind of that aren't just pure software there aren't very many of those kind of companies created globally, and they tend to be created by people who are on their second or third company. And that's because there's just a lot more founding craft I think you need to uh, kind of have developed to be able to navigate such challenging missions. And even then, they are, you know, there's many times at which both those companies have come close to failure. And so our thinking is for Europe to produce more companies like that have an impact on Europe's energy security or Europe's ability to defend itself against aggressors or Europe's ability to innovate fundamentally in healthcare, those kind of challenges are hard missions. And I think it, the unemployables at plural have the potential to really tilt the odds in that founder's favor. I think European venture capital independent of plural also just needs a bit of a reset because if you look at European venture funds, about 8% of the people leading deals leading investments have or got a founder or operating background. You know, most of the rest have kind of got a kind of consulting or banking background. 
And there's just a real cap on how much support and help you can give when you've never actually been a founder yourself. And if you go to the Valley, like it's something like 70% of the sort of investors at the best venture funds have been founders and operators. So a lot of the, the best founders that we know went to Silicon Valley when they needed to get that access to that kind of expertise. And so I think Europe in general just needs more kind of founders and operators to sort of play this kind of mentoring and investing role. A hundred percent. And I guess that's, you know, another huge appeal for anyone that's, that's taking investment from, from plural would be that you've all been there and done it. You've all got the battle scars and you can really see how that will make a, you know, a real tangible difference. There are lots of, it's, it's kind of the perfect segue into my next question. Actually, there are so many misconceptions about what the reality of being a founder is. I'm a, I'm a solo founder almost 10 years into this journey. And I think a lot of people think you wake up with a great idea and then, you know, it's an overnight success. And I think that's often completely <laughs> the opposite is true. So where do you think these misconceptions come from? And, and why does it take two or three businesses often for founders to ha- have their, their very big break? I think that startups in the sort of classic sense are kind of a relatively new area of the economy. I mean, Fairchild Semiconductor, I'm kind of guessing that was founded maybe, let's say, 70 years ago. And so you've got, um, that's not very long, right? You know, there's there's lots of other areas of kind of human life where we've kind of been doing it for a lot longer, whereas building these kind of high-growth technology companies that can kind of scale globally is a relatively new thing. And so I think we just haven't yet really come to fully understand how to do it well. I mean, I think that's partly what we're so transformational about Y Combinator is they really tried to sort of say, look, startups are much more of a thing than they used to be. They're much cheaper to start. Let's try to come up with some real sort of universal insights in how to build startups. You know, one thing we believe at Plural that it feels to me is really under-discussed is that founding is a kind of craft. Being a great software engineer is a sort of understood craft. Being a great metal worker is a gr- understood craft. Being a brilliant chef is a kind of understood craft. But being a founder is a kind of craft as well. It's the craft of putting together the right team, of identifying the right way to tackle the market, identifying how to kind of set the right culture for the kind of product and, and organization you're building, understand the pace to, to move at and, and how to capitalize the business and how to communicate what you're doing to all the various people you're trying to, to get to get behind you. And there's just a lot of things you learn along the way where you start to build intuition about how to do things right. In the same way that someone who's amazing at working with, say, analog electronics, they just have a lot a lot of feel for it. There's a mixture of sort of art and science in doing it well. And so I think it's a craft that is not really understood as yet to be a craft. But if you look at many of the iconic technology companies of the last 20 years, you've got, let's say, Netflix. You know, that was, a, that was not a second-time founder, say, SpaceX, Tesla, Stripe. At that point, they were second-time founders. They'd already spent a couple of years on Automatic, Spotify, Adyen. You know, I, I could go on, but you know, there's a very long list of these iconic companies that actually weren't started by first-time founders. And that doesn't mean that first-time founders can't build amazing companies. But I think there's if they can find somebody to be around that business, intimately involved in it, who really cares about the mission and who has got that sort of craft developed... I think they can kind of catalyze the outcome. And, you know, you can see this if you look at the history of other iconic companies with first-time founders. So the role that Sean Parker played at Facebook in the early days in sort of setting that business up in a way where Zuckerberg had the control that meant they didn't sell to Yahoo early on. 
or kind of seed control to VCs or the role that Martin Lawrenson played at Spotify in, in helping to capitalize a business that was really something that a lot of VCs didn't want to invest in at that time or the role that Mike Markula played at Apple when he sort of helped to mentor Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs through the sort of early, less easy phases of the company before they'd kind of really found something that worked. And so I think that this craft development is is just under-discussed as an idea. And I think it's just a really important thing to acknowledge because otherwise you're just kind of, we're not really recognizing what actually has to happen. If you want to become a great founder, you have to kind of learn how to do that. Yeah, so true. And, and I guess those points really back up that uh, the whole premise of this podcast, which is around getting the right mentors around you and the right support network and i guess that's absolutely what what plural is is offering any startups that you invest in for any founders that are listening to this can you share a little bit more about you know how you like to work with founders and and what types of companies that you're most you know attracted to currently in terms of investment just so anyone listening can uh, you know if they want to approach you so i would say i like companies that are trying to do something very hard, usually, you know, at the frontiers of kind of commercializing science or some real frontier of technology. So, you know, um, I chair a business that is, is trying to develop the first useful application for a quantum computer, which is called Phasecraft. I'm involved in a business that's, that's helping to develop novel quantum materials, kind of various kind of like kind of frontier AI businesses. So I like things where there's some kind of frontier being explored by the founder. That's one thing I really love to kind of get involved in because I just find it so, it really makes me feel alive to be involved in, in those kind of companies. And, and the other thing is, you know, missions with a with a very, you know, kind of, that could make a very substantial uh, contribution to, ch- to tackling some of our sort of largest challenges. So climate is one area. I've been a very active angel investor. And, you know, I, I, I like businesses that could sort of, you know, potentially scale to, for example, removing a gigaton of carbon from the atmosphere or, transitioning some very hard to abate area of the economy to a to a sort of a clean form of energy you know energy generation so that's the sort of thing that i like but usually the businesses that excite most vcs unfortunately are probably not the right business for me i like stuff that's a bit more weird and frontier and maybe a bit more overlooked by sort of traditional traditional investors and in terms of how i like to get involved i like to get on live really early on when everything's really messy and just help to figure it out you know spending quite a lot of time in the weeds with the founder and helping them kind of deal with all that mess and kind of clarify and simplify until we figure out what will really work. Amazing. No, thank, thanks so much, Ian. I also know another big emphasis for you at Plural is, is around diversity. Uh, I know you've invested in 29% female founders, 26% non-white founders, which is, you know, these are, these are great stats for an industry that's uh, struggled with this historically. So can you share a bit more about your approach to DEI and any advice you have for diverse founders listening to this that are currently raising capital? So in terms of advice for diverse founders raising capital, I'd say, first of all, like there are investors that are clearly prioritizing investing in a broader and more diverse set of founders like Ada Ventures, Local Globe are doing great work here. And I think they're just like trying to understand who as investors is really valuing kind of leveling the playing field for access to capital. The other general piece of advice for raising capital that applies here is just building relationships with other founders, peer-to-peer relationships with other founders alongside you in the journey. If if I've invested in a founder that I really respect and trust, having worked with them for five years, and they refer me to a founder that they respect, uh, who having worked alongside them as a peer, that's going to stand out. And the, the third thing I'd say is like, in general, I think cold emails will get read. And the reality is there's a lot of them. 
And I think making the effort to write a cold email that really clearly understands why that person is the right fit for you. I mean, I, I'll get people cold emailing me saying, you know, I'm building a SaaS company focused on KPIs for product management teams. And that, you know, that could be a great startup, but it's totally and utterly not the kind of thing that I'm interested in, in investing at the moment. And so I think being very targeted and if you're going to do cold emails, which does work, you know, I've invested off the back of a cold email. I would say that you kind of need to just do the work to actually find an investor who clearly cares about your mission. Great answer. And, and look, you you referenced uh, Czech Warner. She's been on the podcast. We've really, to your point around kind of, we want to get to a point where it's kind of equal representation. And, and we've certainly tried to sort of shine a light on, on voices that are, are speaking up to this in the venture ecosystem. We've had Czech, we've had um, Azechi Britain from Impact X, you know, and I think that there are a lot of people out there that are, that are trying to do this. So yeah, any, any founders listening, do feel free to, you know, reach out. And I've got a, a list of um, investors in that space. We really are keen to try and help wherever we can. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on that, Ian. Before we let you go, um, I know that just, just looking at the slightly bigger picture, I know that you've got huge aspirations for plural, and that involves having a much bigger macro impact across Europe. So what is your North Star for plural, and, and, and how are you going to achieve that? So the North Star starts with impact on a single company. So I'd like to take a company working on let, I mean, let's create a, a sort of silly example, like a company trying to make the first viable working fusion reactor, right? Or a company trying to make a small nuclear reactor, fission reactor that can just, is small and safe enough, you can have one on every street corner, something like that, a really, really hard, challenging problem. And I'd like to, by spending a day a week with that company and being deep in the weeds, increase the chance of success from like 1% to 20% by just both my time and energy going into the company, but also the collective experience of all the plural unemployables. And if we can then scale that by scaling a sort of peer-to-peer network of these unemployable experienced founders, then in theory, we could actually have quite a large amount of impact on Europe as a whole, because you do that for one company, then two companies, then 10 companies, you can actually impact the ecosystem. And the inspiration for that is Estonia. And, and Tarbit and Sten, my you know, two of my co-founders are plural, they sort of told me that Estonia has a population of a million people, but they already have seven unicorn startups and startups have contributed 3% plus of GDP to Estonia. And a lot of that is basically boils down to the fact that Estonia was just a bit earlier in getting a really big hit in the form of Skype. And Skype then catalyzed the ecosystem to have more experienced engineers, more experienced product managers, more experienced marketeers starting the next wave of companies. And so they were just kind of one level earlier in the ecosystem than, say, Paris or London or Berlin. And so our like North Star is beyond individual company impact is trying to have GDP impact on Europe, where we are we contribute to producing some truly world-class organizations that, that make a dent on challenges like climate or energy security or food security or the future of healthcare. What an amazing North Star to have. And I'm sure there'll be lots of aspiring founders or early stage founders that will, you know, I'm sure be uh, be really inspired by by your words there and hopefully can go on to build these category-defining businesses across Europe. Before we get to our rapid questions, is there any kind of final piece of advice for any leaders of and potentially high-growth companies already about what they can do to play their part in this and just why it's so important right now? I think constantly trying to raise the ambition level for your organization and to really set the ambition as being the best in the world at what you're trying to do is kind of, I think, probably the core. I'm thinking in particular of a business called Helsing. And um, I was the one of the first investors in this business. And it, it was founded in 2020. 
with the intention of, you know, European kind of sovereign countries, democracies needed some kind of next generation defense technology, rather than being reliant on American defense primes or Chinese defense primes. And um, my friend Torsten Rahl and I, we seeded the company with a view that, you know, Trump was in power. America was a much less reliable partner on, on defense. And at the same time, you had sort of the rise of, you know, very substantial sort of AI military companies in, in China. And so the company got started. And over time, Torsten actually decided to join the business as CEO. And I would say like the, you know, the biggest thing that Torsten did in addition to raising the level of founder experience in the business is just really raising the level of ambition and saying, right, we're going to really actually be the very best company in the world at this. And by doing so, we're going to fundamentally rewrite how European democracies think about defense. And obviously, this was before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But I think that the core kind of insight I really took from watching someone like Torsten is just raising the ambition level of what you're doing is an amazingly catalyzing effect because it, it draws more talent, it draws more capital, and it draws more energy into the business. Such an interesting answer. Uh, thank you so much, Ian. And thank you for being such a, a fantastic guest. And we are sadly at the end, Ian, we've got three final questions that we'd just love to, to, to get your thoughts on as we wrap up. So in one sentence, what do you think the future holds for Plural? Helping some really hard European missions succeed. Awesome. And if you could be mentored by anyone dead or alive, who would that be and why? I'd choose Jerry Moffat to mentor me on my rock climbing. Oh, amazing. <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> that's that's the first <laughs> and finally what's the best advice you've ever received i mean maybe it's my dad telling me to go for it with song kick just kind of the encouragement to go for it yeah no well, sometimes that's all you need isn't it it's a sort of gentle push in the right direction from someone that you you love and trust uh, thank you so much ian it's been a real privilege and a pleasure to, to chat to you and uh, you know you've built an incredible business you're now investing in amazing companies and you know it's incredibly exciting to hear about your uh, your big ambitions for plural so we wish you all the very best thank you so much for joining us on 14 minute mentor today and that's everything from us this week i really hope you enjoyed our conversation with ian and if you did please remember to leave us a review and hit the subscribe button See you again next week when I'm joined by Job van der Voort, the co-founder and CEO of Remote, a fintech empowering companies of all sizes to pay and manage workers in over 50 countries all around the world. We chat about building remote teams, Job's experience at GitLab, one of the biggest remote companies, and the amazing culture the remote team have built over the years. For a little taster, we've included some episode snippets for you here. Enjoy. Choose people that... I have good references. Do those reference checks yourself. You can just call. You know, you just call or send a Twitter message to another founder who is working with that VC and ask them how is it working with them. Because what you want to do is you want to work with people, and this is the obvious thing, but it's so valuable. Like you've learned that it's so valuable. People that challenge you and then one in that in good times challenge you and get you to a point where you are better and in bad times support you and help you, you know, get to a better place as a, as a business and as a whole. If you're all adults and you treat each other kindly, then it solves a lot of problems. And you treat people fairly, then that's it. And then if the if the company, you know, if something hard happens, just be open and transparent and honest about it. And most people will deal well with that. And not everybody and those people they can work somewhere else. You become the master of your time and space. Where you live, when you live, how you live, that is your freedom rather than you have to live in a city, in a small apartment 
because that's close to an office where you get paid well. Like that's a lifestyle that some people might want and like they can choose that and everybody else can do something else.